This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. We have Zara Palta today, and uh, she will help us to understand a little bit more about the context and what's happening and what has happened in Turkey, right? Yeah. So to get started today, uh, I have a little quote, uh, idea that I'm borrowing from Border Crossings, Cultural Workers and the Politics of Education by Henry Giroux. And as I was reading a uh, Giroud reflects on the limits and possibilities of border crossing in the 21st century, and he argues that after 9-11, borders have not been collapsing but vigorously rebuilt. However, these borders of our diverse identities, subjectivities, experiences, and communities connect us to each other more than they separate us, especially as such borders are continually changing and mutating within the fast-forward dynamics of globalization. So that being said, that is the spirit of this podcast, and especially today that we have Zara, who's going to help us to raise those borders and move forward to, to a world in which we understand each other better. So welcome, Zara. Thank you, Yassid, and I thank you for welcoming me to your podcast. All right, so tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and about your family, your country, whatever you want to tell us about yourself. Okay, uh, so I'll say my name again in the Turkish pronunciation. Um, it's Zehra Melike Palta, and I'm a third-year PhD student in the Language and Literacies Education Program. Um, I came to Canada in 2002, whereas my dad came to Canada in 1999 as a refugee. Um, he had to escape Canada. So when I first came to Canada, um, I was exposed to various values and traditions of the so-called Canadian society. Um, and ever since then, I've been questioning what does it mean to be Canadian. For example, I'm a Canadian citizen now, and uh, what you know when we look at individuals who consider an immigrant or a refugee to be integrated, they usually associate it with the Canadian values. So. You know, they might consider me a very integrated individual because I can speak English, I'm doing a doctorate degree, I know both of the official languages of Canada. So, but the question is, do I really consider myself integrated? You know, what do I mean by integration? Uh, or what do they mean by integration? So these are some of the questions that I'm asking in my research that I became um interested in because of my experiences and also because of my involvement with the refugee community who are coming in from Turkey. Um, so that would be the direction that I'm going today and talking about uh, my experiences and my research. You know what, that's, that's so interesting that you're talking about what it means to be Canadian. And like yourself, I'm also a Canadian citizen now. And sometimes it feels strange when you are abroad and when you travel and then you show your Canadian passport and they look at you and then as if as if I don't look I, uh, as exactly. Canadian, right? And it, it is weird. It's a weird uh, uh, feeling when when you think, if you think about it. But anyhow, 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about Turkey, your country, where you're coming from? So um, I belong to an ethnic minority group we call the Alevis. And uh, many of the refugees who are coming to Canada right now are, they belong to the Kurdish and Alevi um, minority groups. So I'll just go brief about what who are Alevis are and what their philosophy is. Um, Alevis, uh, they had a long history of being oppressed and massacred by the Ottoman Empire and the Republic of Turkey. And today, um, in today's Turkey, they represent 20 to 25% of the national population, but they're still not recognized. Wow. So they're still seeking recognition, uh, even though they have been recognized in various um, countries such as Germany and England, but still not in Turkey. Um, in Turkey, they're being considered as heretics or one with that religion. And, you know, President Erdogan of Turkey went even further um, indicating, you know, one religion, one language, one nation, one flag, and those who do not like it are welcome to leave. So those are. This just um, gives you an idea of how the um, the president of Turkey and you know the dominant political uh, um, perspectives of Turkey are looking at minorities, and you know their perspective on minorities is not something that's new. Um, it's been going around for many many years. Um, when you, for example, look at the establishment of the um, Young Republic of Turkey, their nation-building nation process was based on the elimination of cultures and um, linguistic minorities. So this hasn't been something um, that's been just happening right now. And when we look at Alevism, um, so there are many perspectives on this, but I'm an Anatolian Alevi. So our perspective is that um, Alevism is neither a religion nor a sect. It's a unique philosophy, a faith, a way of culture, uh, a way of life, a teaching, and indeed a social formula peculiar to Anatolia that is anthropocentric and that goes beyond all these. And you know, some scholars they indicated, you know, some um, individuals they indicate that it it might be close to Shiism because of cultural elements, but um, you know scholars and our elders indicate that, you know, no, Alevism took a shape long before Islam with influences from Central Asian faiths such as shamanism, Zoroastrianism, and later on by Judaism and Christianity. So it's basically like a, how can I say, uh, not a cultural mosaic, but um, it's been influenced by various um, religions and various um, cultures that have lived in the, um, the, um, the Anatolian region and the um, Mesopotamian region as well. So because of their differences in philosophy, um, they've been killed for hundreds of years and uh, this still continues today. And when you look at the 1978 massacre in Marash, um, some of my relatives were killed in that as well. Wow. Um, so, you know, it's not really, uh, you can't really identify yourself as Alevi in Turkey. I mean, Yes, you might in some regions. For example, when I was in Turkey, I never knew I was Alevi until I came to Canada. So, you know, coming in to Canada was, you know, reclaiming my identity, basically. And I'm starting to learn um, who I am. So I don't really have... I'm, I'm, I don't really have much of an information of who what Alevis are, and I'm still um, in that learning process. So... Um, if you're interested to learn more about Alevis, we have an elder who was chosen in 2010 as the um, living human treasure by UNESCO. Um, I can give you the name. Uh, so if you're interested to learn more about it, uh, you can definitely look at his work. I am so glad to hear these stories, uh, Zara, because 
something that you just said, the idea of rediscovering your identity, mm -hmm. your background, your roots, is something that happened to me as well. Like I, I uh, it was not until I came to Canada that I now reflect on my background and where I'm coming from, Colombia, in South America, but also looking and understanding more about uh, indigenous peoples in mm -hmm. Colombia, indigenous peoples, yeah. uh, cosmovision and how they see life. Yeah. So do you think that coming to Canada actually helped you to rediscover who you are? I, th I think that if the sociopolitical conditions in Turkey were different, I would have been able to discover my identity there. Um, but since it was, you know, sometimes like you would be in a neighborhood and you're the only two Alevi neighbors in the whole community, then you would have to hide your identity not to be discriminated by others. Wow. So if the conditions were different in Turkey, of course, you know, I would have been able to identify myself, you know, uh, figure out my identity better because there we have the elders, there we can attend our ceremonies called Gem to learn about our philosophy. But since, like, my dad tells me, you know, um, in th they grew up in a small village and this small village consisted of Alevis, but the surrounding villages were of non-Alevi communities. So they would be like, we would go into a house and secretly carry out our ceremonies. And um, one of the 12 main um, roles in the um, the ceremonies is we call the gözcü. Um, so that it can be, uh, how can I say that in English? <laughs> this well, is going to be say, hard say to translate. No, say, say it in your language. <laughs> okay, gözcü. So the role of this individual would be to stand um, by the door and look if there are any strangers or, you know, non-Alevi individuals are coming because people have been killed in their ceremonies by the officials, by the state officials and by the neighboring countries. So they had to carry out their ceremony secretly, you know? And those were the conditions that prevented me to figure out who I am and what Alevis are. And once I came to Canada, um, my dad has been very active with the Alevi community and we do have a Canadian Alevi culture center. So here, you know, sometimes they would bring elders again from Turkey because we don't have any elders here. Um, they would give um, seminars, they would talk to the teens, they would carry out ceremonies. And there I was exposed to who I am and, you know, learn a bit more about my philosophy. Awesome. Part of that identity is always and also language. Mm -hmm. So I, I would like to know briefly about your languages, the languages that you use, how many languages do you speak, and also when do you use these languages? Okay, um, so if we refer to Alevis, they do have Turkish Alevis, they have Kurdish Alevis, so you know, th they have various languages. And what I belong to is a Turkish Alevi, so my mother language would be Turkish. And um, and then I came here in 2002 and then I started learning English and I picked up French and I did my um, honors in French linguistics as well as my master's in French linguistics. So I can say that I'm fluent in Turkish, English, and French. Nice, so yeah. three languages. Three languages. This is great, good yeah. to know. And I'm, op and I'm open to learn more. <laughs> 
Of course, but I wonder when do you when uh, in what moments do you you use Turkish? When mm -hmm. do you use English? And when do you use French? Um, I use Turkish with my family and with my friends um, who are Turkish or Kurdish. I use English mainly in school um, to carry out my research, and I used well French almost three years ago while I was teaching in um, French immersion and do my masters. So um, different context is where I would do a change of languages. <laughs> so did you did you learn English uh, when you were in Turkey or you learned it? I know I think you said that that you learned it here, right? Um, I learned it in Canada. They do introduce you to English in grade four, like how I would learn French here. But um, the quality of the education is questionable. <laughs> and how yeah. about the quality of English teaching? Um, in Turkey or yes, here? Yes, no, in, in, in Turkey. In Turkey is very questionable because um, I do have friends who came from Turkey and they're like, the only thing that we learned was, what's your name? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and the colors and the Exactly. Numbers, like one of my friends, um, she indicates that, you know, they didn't have an English teacher, so their chemistry teacher would enter their English classes and they would do chemistry in English. <laughs> English class, not like in the English language, right. but... <laughs> do you think is there any influence or big influence of English in Turkey in your opinion? Um, yes. Um, for example, Turkey, um, English has been, you know, we're talking about globalization. So um, in order for students um, to be seen more um, employable, they think that, you know, English is very important. And um, over the last three years now, we have a lot of Turkish speakers who are coming to Canada for language school to learn. So um, interestingly is that those who are refugees um, who have a, uh, made a refugee claim to Canada are coming here through language schools as well. So, you know, that's like an exit route for them. They get their student visa and then they um, apply as refugees here. Uh, but like those individuals who are way off, well, you know, they're rich, they got rich parents at home, they don't have any political conflicts in Turkey, they go back, but those who need that protection are seeking that um, that route to come to Canada. So I'm gonna ask you a question, yeah. sort of to shift a little bit to mm -hmm. your research, but that question is related to what you just said. Yeah. Who is seeking refugee in Canada now, And but this question is related to, is. Uh, for my understanding, for many other people as well mm -hmm. that I know of, mostly and unfortunately, most of the people who seek a refugee, ref, 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 <laughs> I don't know how to say this word. Refugee claims. Refugee claims <laughs> um, are unfortunately are people who have money to actually come to Canada as as uh, students, right? Mm -hmm. Like they come, people that I know, they come back in their countries that are middle class and sometimes upper class who come to Canada uh, and they claim, they, they make the claim, yeah. right? But I wonder what happens with the people who actually need it, like the poor people, you know, lower class in the countries. Who are the people in, in Turkey who are coming here? Um, so when you look at the people that came here, so there's three different um, categories that I would put the refugees into. One known as Hizmet or Gulen movement, which I'll get into it later on. Um, I would say that they're the um, well-off, the high-income individuals who do have the money. Um, so the Kurds and the Alevis 
um, they're, they belong to the lower income or low to middle income um, classes. So, you know, when we're looking at vegan refugee, mostly we would think of, you know, those are who are escaping from the war. But no, there's economic refugees as well. And we have to keep that in mind. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for enlightening <laughs> me on that. That yeah. it's not only refugees of war, but exactly. economic refugees. Exactly. And that's something that hasn't been recognized in the, um, the convention. Well, yeah. Thanks for, for, for <laughs> helping me to understand a little bit more about that context. So let's move on really quick into your research and what, what you're doing in terms of research or what you're planning to do. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so I'll give you a, big, a bit of a background of um, the refugees in Canada. So the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada indicates that the um, asylum claims from Turkey shot up to more than 1,300 during 2016. Mm -hmm. So that's close to five times as many as a year before, uh, with about 398 claims accepted. So about four times as many as 2015. Uh, so in 2017, Turkey was the top third country of alleged persecution identified by the number of refugee claims made to Canada. And when we look at our Alevi community center, we have at least six Alevi refugees um, who are coming to our center to ask, what do I do in Canada now that, that, that I made my claim? And when you look at it, these are you know, highly educated individuals who are coming to seek asylum in Canada. Um, who have, let's say, their doctors or their lawyers, and they left everything in Turkey. They left all their bank, you know, deposits, their apartments, just to be safe in Canada. Because if they go back, they know that they will be again facing persecution. Yes. So why are they coming to Canada? What's happening in Turkey? Um, so throughout the history of Turkey, we have seen governments carry on unlawful acts and implement undemocratic decisions to silence the opposing views and to oppress the minority groups. So this has been a continuous problem in Turkey and it continues to worsen every day. For example, in 2015, we saw an example of the oppressive politics with the demolition of cities where the mainly the Kurdish population lived as the majority of the population declared that they will not be supporting um, the presidential system campaign compo uh, proposed by the leading Justice and Development Party. But um, this horrifying situation is not something new. Uh, the Kurdish population has been facing these kinds of oppression and cruelty for years. So then 2016 came, a failed coup d'etat mm. happened. Um, this was a very controversial um, coup d'etat and it's still being discussed in various disciplines. You know, some there are some scholars or some politicians who indicate that it was Erdogan, the President Erdogan, who did the coup to consolidate his power, whereas some indicate that it was a failed attempt by his former ally, Gulen or Hizmet movement that I mentioned a couple right. of minutes ago. And they indicate that it was a power struggle between the two allies. So, um, and you know, some indicate, okay, no, it's him because it's Erdogan because he indicated that this coup d'etat was a godsend to him, oh. you know? And so all these um, 
conflicts have led to, led to even more totalitarian authoritarian politics. So when you look at current Turkey now, members of parliaments from opposition parties are in jail. The leaders of the opposition parties, such as HTP, is in jail. People are in jail for sharing post-criticizing Erdogan's politics. Hundreds of, hundreds of journalists imprisoned, um, activists, members of parliaments right now are in hunger strike. And you know, 5,000 academics have also been fired from their post just because um, publishing or you know, lecturing students about what's happening in Turkey. So, and once you've been removed, you can't um, appeal the decision and you're barred for life from working in the public sector. So this is the, um, the political situation in Turkey and what's um, making individuals escape to Canada. Interesting, just, there's just a, a little bit inter, uh, of interjection here is, I, it, it reminded me that these issues are, are not necessarily isolated, but are happening uh, 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 across the planet, right? Like just the example exactly. of what's happening in Venezuela is something not necessarily similar, but these these struggles exactly. and, and political issues happening all around, and and I relate to that because mm -hmm. that happens to Venezuela. I'm Colombian, so we hear all these topics all the time, yeah. and and this could attack. You know, is 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 difficult. Exactly, and like we do know. The global there's a global refugee crisis at the moment, yes. as indicated, and we do know the situation, or at least we know a bits of information about, for example, what's happening in Venezuela, what's happening in Turkey. But where I will um, lead this conversation is, what are we doing for them? So, you know, I was reading um, some stats a couple of days ago regarding the refugee claims that were made to Canada. And um, the wait time for the claim to be referred to the Refugee Protection Division. Mm -hmm. So this is where there are members who make the decisions um, to see that if you're eligible for protection in Canada or not, um, is two years. So a refugee comes here, um, makes a claim, and in order for the claim to be referred to even to the Refugee Protection Division, they have to wait for two years. So you're you're without a status, basically. You're you know you're you have limited um, opportunities, access to settlement and language services because of your status. So when somebody comes to Canada, refugees come to Canada, we expect them to integrate. But are we really providing them that sport to integrate? Mm -hmm. You know, wh what do we even mean by integrate? As I right. first said, right. so this is where. Uh, my research comes, I want to look at their um, so-called integration experiences. And when you look at academia, there is no agreed definition of what integration is. For example, we have scholars Lee, um, who indicate that the official integration discourse in Canada um, reifies specific cultural and racial differences and represents them as threats to Canada's core values and promotes conformity as a desirable outcome for outcome for immigrants, despite rhetorical commitment to diversity and multiculturalism. And then you have immigration critics such as Stufman and Colicott, um, who indicate that in order for immigrants to be considered integrated, they will need to abandon their cultural differences, non-official languages, and relationship with their communities as multiculturalism is divisive and uh, different cultures have irreconcilable values. So you have two different definitions, two different poles of where people are standing in terms of integration. But as I was reading, you know, the literature, I thought, 
Hold on a second. We're always defining what others mean by integration. What about the refugees themselves? Yes. How are they defining to be integrated? So the purpose of my study is to trigger a shift in the conceptualization of integration from dominant discourses that are shaped by political and ideological principles to understanding it through the lived experiences of the refugees who are subjected to integration discourse themselves. Yes, I like that. And and are are you using any specific methodology that you're following to address these issues? Uh, I'm using a photo voice method. Um, it's a very innovating uh, method that I came across. It was developed by Wang. Mm -hmm. um, it's from what I can see, it's mainly used in the um, when they're looking at studies on health, health and community. Mm -hmm. um, it's a participatory action research method, uh, which involves the researchers and the participants to reach a consensus on the research questions, uh, where then later on refugees or you know the participants uh, produce images to reflect their realities. And then they come and discuss them in groups um, through a specific called the showed method. So here they have a couple questions, for example, they have to answer in groups or you know they can uh, present their work. For example, we look at what you see here in this image. What is really happening here? How does this relate to our lives? Why does this concern, situation, or strength exist? How can we become empowered through our new understanding? And what can we do about our situation? So Wang uh, indicates that these questions allow the participants to identify the problem or the asset, critically discuss the roots of the situation, and develop strategies for improving the situation. And this photo voice method, one of the theoretical orientations that it was influenced by was Freire's. Um, and, you know, um, Freire also indicates that, you know, through a collaborative process of reflection, introspection, and discussion, discussion of images, communities will be able to uncover the social and political constructions that maintain their mi marginalization. So I chose this method because um, usually when you look at the dominant discourses, refugees are seen as other, as dependent, as mm. passive mm. individuals. Yes. Yes. I wanted to show, no, they do have that agency. Mm. They're trying to establish a life here and you know, it is important to empower them. It is important to see their lived experiences through their eyes rather than just me going and observing them and trying to interpret it, uh, their lives. So, you know, and it also, um, I thought it's important, yes, they're trying to be integrated, they're being subjected to integration discourse, but them to become aware of what are they being subjected to. And, you know, if they're sub being subjected to something that they're not aware, but then be come to realization because of this method, what will be the actions that they take? So that's where Freire's notion of critical consciousness comes into um, light. Right. I'm so yeah. glad that um, you're talking about um, the participants as not necessarily being passive. You know, in research, sometimes people talk about the subjects. Mm -hmm. And I like it because you are seeing or you are not seeing them necessarily as an object exactly. of research, but as people, right? Mm -hmm. And I like it because you're also trying to amplify their voices and their experiences and put them at the front and center. 
Exactly. which uh, some other people don't necessarily do that. So I have a quick question related to your method. You're talking about pictures, photographs, I'm assuming, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of pictures will you show them? Do you, do you already know what kind of picture will you show them? And and what if these, these, in this exercise, this showing of pictures mm-hmm. will trigger some kind of trauma or traumatic events? Uh, so it's not me who's choosing the pictures, but rather they're going and taking pictures of their own lives. Uh, Because if I show them the picture, then I'm sort of expect them, them to re- relate to that particular right, picture. Right. But if they go out and show pictures or take pictures of their own lives, then they're being the decision maker of what they want to display to the reader or to the audience who will be looking at their picture. So um, they get to decide what they want to portray, what, how they want to show themselves and as well how they want to show their lives. Nice, I like that idea of having them to choose what they want to share and not you as a researcher imposing, hey, look at this picture. What do you what do you want to say about this picture? How do you relate to this picture? But it's about them. Exactly. It's about their lives. And I really like, I think that's the, the core of your research. The importance of your research is uh, your participants and not necessarily you as a researcher. And I, I love that. Exactly. And like when you look at the image of refugees, uh, our perceptions are very influenced by the dominant discourses, by what media is portraying them to be. So by giving them the chance to go out, um, take pictures of their own life, we're having that um, the communication with them. Now they're saying, this is the way you're showing me, but this is who I really am. And this is what I'm trying to show you. So please look at to my, in, to my life, look at my history, look at wh- who I am. It, don't, just don't look at me as a label of, with the label of refugee because right. I'm an individual hmm. and refugees is just my status. Awesome. So we're about to wrap up in a second. Is there anything you want us to learn from you or Turkey before we wrap up? Um, so I brought some recommended readings. Um, so if you're interested to look at photo voice research, Um, and in particularly how photo voice research can be applied in educational research. Um, there is a book by M- Amanda Olatz, so it's called Photo Voice Research in Education and Beyond, A Practical Guide from Theory to Exhibition, so that you can definitely look at that. And if you're interested in forced migration studies, there are various um, councils as well as um, associations in Canada um, So, for example, you can look at the Canadian Association for Refugee and Forced Migration Studies or the Canadian Council for Refugees who publish articles, working papers, or um, they um, create conferences. And actually, the Canadian Association for Refugee and Forced Migration Studies, they have a conference looking, um, I believe it was in May, May 13th, and they're looking at interrogating integration. So that's the um, the theme of their conference. And they will be also having a, a side conference or a mini conference um, looking at the, the migration that's happening in Latin America. So if you're interested, definitely those are some of the events that you should attend. <laughs> Sweet. This was a very thought-provoking conversation. Zara, thanks so much for enlightening us. Thank you very much, Yusid. <laughs>